This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. The narrow gate, as I was taught to understand it, was always about the selectivity of heaven. Who is in and who is out. The phrase narrow gate meant to me, as I heard it, that most people were basically moral failures. And so they did not measure up and they would not have a key to slip on in. In fact, I basically imagined it a lot like this. For most of us peons, the mighty moralist might look down on us and say, well, you can't hope to get in. Only the elect shall pass. So there are some real problems with this interpretation, but I bought it, hook, line, and sinker. In fact, interpretations like this were what turned me away from Christianity and turned me away from the Bible when I was young. So to get at this interpretation, we, we only get a few pre-selected saints going through, and you have to read the scripture as if it has nothing to do with actual gates. And you have to read this to get here by saying that it's all allegorical. And it's very, very popular for quite a while to interpret most everything in the Bible allegorically. So the gate is an allegorical, it's not a real gate, it's an allegorical portal to heaven and passing through it is a metaphor for the few elect who will step up and be whisked away or beamed up. Just a few. And those are the ones that God had either pre-selected to pass through or who would morally measure up. But there is nothing in the actual text to justify this kind of off-world, pie-in-the-sky reading. You can begin to question that simply by reading the two verses together with the rest of the passage. This snippet about the narrow gate is part of a much larger teaching about good conduct, starting with verse 7's, don't judge, so, uh, so you won't be judged. That doesn't sound very selective. So basically what we have is a behavioral rules list, a list that might fit very well, actually, in the classroom. And prayers up to all the teachers here who are preparing their classrooms for the new school week in, uh, in just a few weeks. So the part of Matthew 7 would fit very well into an elementary school class. And so I tried that. Welcome to Mr. Matthew's classroom. Don't use mean judging voices or shake fingers at one another. If you need a snack, just ask. Your teacher will give you bread and not snakes to share. Don't feed your homework to the dog or your mother's pearl necklace to the pigs. I think that's always good advice. If you lose something, look for it and you will find it. Treat others the way you would want to be treated and stuck outside after recess, knock. Someone will open the door for you. That's, that's what this segment of the Bible is. It's a list of behavioral 
instructions about how to live well in community with others and that your behaviors might reflect and build a better world. So right before, so not only does it start with do not judge, but the verse right before the narrow gate verse is uh, uh, you should treat people the same way that you want people to treat you. So nowhere in any of that is any indication that we are suddenly going to be coming upon a locked gate. This is all basic. Open the door. Knock and the door will open. Treat others as you want to be treated. Don't be judging. That's not a locked gate at all. So this is a bit of a silly example, but we run into danger when we separate the words from the context they were written in and decide that the story is about beaming out somewhere instead of being a good human being right here at home. So the Bible does talk about God and heaven, and then of course there is also allegory, but when Jesus talks about what the kingdom of heaven is like, he does it with his feet firmly on the ground Jesus, remember, had dirt on his sandals. He ate and he drank and he hung out with his disciples in little fishing boats. The stories he tells are about real people, their real lives, their loving God and the real politics of the time. So in addition to the rest of chapter 7, there are two key words in these two narrow gate verses that are really helpful to tease out. The two words specifically are stenos, which just means narrow, just narrow, and thlebo, which means squished. The narrow gate is not figuratively narrow, allowing only select people in. It is just literally a narrow gate. See, here is a nice wide gate. You can drive a car through it. You could trot donkeys through it and a number of pedestrians all at the same time. Lots of room, lots of room. But this gate here in the castle wall is considerably narrower, and you can see there's a steep staircase, and I'm going to feel much more afflicted going up those steps, especially if I just ate a full meal and I had to take it at a jog. And you are not gonna get a car through this gate. You'll have to park it. In fact, you're barely gonna get your bike and your saddlebags through it, and you get a couple peoples and a couple donkeys next to you, and getting in through it is going to be seriously uncomfortable. It is a narrow gate, and you are going to get squished and bumped and jostled moving through it. You are going to be uncomfortable. So cities in ancient times were surrounded by walls, and if there was a castle, it had a wall, and there were only so many entry points, and some were quite narrow. Ancient people knew that these were real, not allegory. They were real enough that going through them, if you had any competition or companions, meant you had to squeeze through and get all pressed together. And imagine donkey breath on your face. That's kind of what I imagined. Imagine trying to squeeze through with the donkeys. So there is nothing moral at work in this awkward process. This is a behavior process. It is behaviorally difficult, not morally. You just need to keep your hands where folks can see them. <laughs> Be ready to cover your face if the donkey sneezes. So, I know I'm having a hard time being serious today, but just a bit of a lesson that I want us to hear it without, because the real world, the way we hear this in our world is sometimes really unhelpful 
for those that we might want to invite in to know that God is good and calls us in a good way to good things. So allegory can be a very convenient way not to have to participate in what God is asking us at all. It's a great end run about around the narrow gate. Think about it, if I run into a hungry person, that person is not metaphorically hungry. They are not an allegory. They are not a metaphor for my personal relationship with Jesus or a figurative object for me to moralize over. That person is hungry and sitting there right now. So I want to tell you an example. Okay, so last Tuesday, every Tuesday we have a dinner here that we offer for all comers, people who need it, people who just want the companionship, people who, it's, it's a, just an open door. So last Tuesday, a young man was sitting on the steps outside the chapel with another man about 10 in the morning. So our dinner starts at 4.30. So I let them know that we are looking forward to serving a meal later, and we ask that our guests wait to come to our campus until 4 p.m. So one of the gentlemen, somebody I recognize, I've seen quite a bit, politely leaves, and I thank him. The other one was a new face for me, and he did not budge. Him maybe was 18, 19. We get a lot of different folks because people are different, different circumstances, and different personalities. I tend to appreciate our guests, but this young man was rapidly working my last nerve. He had little, million little arguments, all offered up from a lounging position without budging so much as to rest his arm in a different place. It was annoying, but also understandable. I may be blind about many things, but even I have eyes to see that he was, and clearly had been, living rough for a while. These encounters have a few predictable steps. We start with greeting, then we exchange requests, sometimes I can help. After that, we enter into what I call negotiation. In most cases, we negotiate for needs, and folks go several ways. Typical kind of teenage stuff, right? Any of us who've raised teenagers recognize those steps. Other times, the negotiation lasts a while, and frankly, it can get tedious. Also, right up the teen alley, he wanted to know this variance of the rule, and that variance, he was looking for loopholes, and he wanted to eke out time. So I recognized that negotiation was a lost cause, so I moved to stage three, where I become a broken record, and I know the world is not fair, and I'm not going to pretend it is, but I can only help so much, and if, unless you need to see the doctor, the doors to the dinner open at 4 o'clock. So I just say that over and over again. I notice he is being stubborn. No doubt he thinks I am also being stubborn. And I notice that eventually, every round of argument, we, he settles back on one point, the food, what kind, when, how is it served, who sits next to it, who gets to have some. And he is not budging from his step. Always in these conversations, I'm trying to listen past the arguing to see if there is something I can actually do. And I see that in this case, the stubbornness deepens and the remedy is actually going to be easy. He is hungry. It's really that simple. And as such as that goes, I can help. I am not supposed to give out food prior to the dinner. 
I do occasionally make exceptions. And I went to the kitchen where they were already making sandwiches and asked if I could have some. I brought the two halves out to this gentleman to see his eyes light up. He budged, and he was grateful. He came back at 4 o'clock. This is a good narrow gate example because this is a circumstance that highlights what is in fact behavior and morality it doesn't really have anything to do with it. I am not supposed to get a sandwich early for anybody. And it isn't even my sandwich to give. It belongs to Peace House who supplies all the food. So I was a rule breaker and a food appropriator. So on the moral Spectrum, eh, my button just got pushed. Moralists don't technically take stuff that doesn't belong to them. As for the gentleman, he was kind of a butthead. Not gonna lie. He was short-tempered and he was not a sweet talker. If I had raised a standard of morality based on this young man's appearance and manner, he would not have had any moral standing either. So if the narrow gate was about morality, neither of us would have gotten through it. Luckily, it's a narrow gate, actually narrow, not a moral gate ready to beam you to heaven. It's an actual gate, and the washed and the unwashed alike can walk through it. Doing what is right and what was needed in this case is simply about our behavior, what we did. It was not about how sweet we smell or how many rules I broke. Both of us could walk through the gate, feed the hungry, tend the sick, welcome the stranger. I could help him with what he needed, which was something to eat before 4 o'clock. And he could help me with what I needed, which is that I need help keeping the campus safe. Okay, so one more example. Um, nope, I'm going to jump that one. Okay, so our behaviors are often driven by our moral compasses. So we have, there, it's not like morality doesn't enter into it anywhere. So I, I don't want to say that because I know somebody will tell me on the way out, hey, well, it's our, you know, we, we do the right thing because in our hearts we are moral people or we seek to be. The point is you don't have to be at all as long as the behavior is there. But it is true that morality often does influence our behavior. And if our moral compass is about taking care of us, if we're miserly about our pennies, if, if, we, if, we, if we begrudge giving to others, we're going to run into trouble and our behaviors will reflect that. And so the behavior that would take us through the narrow gate doesn't. And that's where the morality often comes in. Morality, though, can be taken way too far in phrases like, in, in, uh, in verses like this. And they're basically used as clobber texts, right, to condemn people, rather than invitational texts that say, hey, this is, this is a narrow gate and you get a bit squished, but it's really easy. If you see somebody who's hungry, help them, help them. Offer them food. Do something you can for them. So the right behavior is to help someone in need. Moralizing or not, grumble all you like. Just do it. Even if you have to grit your teeth, even if you hate 
every minute of it because ta-da, Jesus says, these are real world problems, right? Don't judge, don't uh, feed your pearl necklace to the, your mother's ne pearl necklace to the pigs. And if you do it, you will have life or more importantly, life. This is the way that we create heaven as it, earth as it is in heaven, heaven on earth. So we return to the story of the coins that we've been working on for the last few weeks. And in this story, we've been talking about um, stories of lostness just in general, lost sheep, lost sons, and the woman who lost a coin in her home and lit a lamp to search and look for it. When she finds it, she rejoices with her neighbors and even the angels rejoice. Her morality is not an issue in this story. She is a woman who lost a coin that was worth a day's work. She wants to find it and she sweeps her home. No mention is made whether she is a good or bad person. The example highlights her behavior. When something is lost, you look for it. And that's straight out of my, Matthew 7. If you lose it, look for it. It's right off of our kindergarten cheat sheet. Into this real-world example, right in the middle of this everyday working woman's home, comes a story of God. She is not off-worlding. She is down to earth. She lights the lamp. She must avoid getting smoke in her eyes, even as she brings the light close up to see better. She is taking that broom and sweeping up dirt. She is putting her fingers into the nooks and crannies. She is lifting up the loom and the clay jars to check under them. She is shuffling the pile of sandals at the door and the cushions where the folks gather to sit. She is sticking the broom up as far under the feeding trough as she can and digging in along the seams of the wall where the wall meets the dirt floors. If we switch the story of the lost sheep, we get a story of a shepherd who has lost one of his sheep and we listen to the story and we hear that the shepherd is doing pretty much the same stuff, behavioral stuff. The shepherd has his feet on the ground. He is likely barefoot. He uses his toes to grip the dirt and climb the rocky outcroppings where he must climb up into the hills a bit. With his ears, he strains, listening for the cry of the sheep. When he hears it, he speeds up. Perhaps he even shouts a warning in case there may be predators lurking nearby because it is getting dark. And even as he is getting hungry, he knows the wild dogs are getting hungry too. His morality and social cleanliness are not an issue. It is his behavior that matters. A sheep is lost, what should he do? He needs to look for it. He can do it grumbling, but he needs to do it. It's just the right thing. So some of us won't make it through, not because we are not elect, not because we are not good enough, not because the gate is locked. It's not. It's wide open. But because we will not want to take on the discomfort of doing the right thing. It's really just that simple. Keep your feet on the ground. This here, this earth is what we inherit as the kingdom of God. How we behave, what we do here on classroom earth, that is what's gonna make the difference. The stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin in Luke are told back to back, and they end with these words, I tell you, Jesus says, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. So I have one more thing to share with you. 
This last Wednesday, our church hosted, and I helped uh, plan the Interfaith Social Justice Coalition of Ashland's Voices of Faith Summit, inviting people of faith to ch and churches across Ashland to come and talk about solutions for homelessness. We had a tremendous turnout. We ran out of food. We ran out of folders. Um, we had enough chairs. We had to break out into groups. Chris, the day before, was helping us figure out where groups of people could go. Early in the event, I noticed there was a young man in the uh, courtyard. And next thing, he's over by the electrical outlet, messing with it, trying to charge a cell phone. This happens a lot. If you're on the road, you need a place to charge your cell phone, and cell phones are still kind of the center of how you get help and how you find your way around, even if you're homeless. But it's dangerous to do that, and I really, we don't want people doing that. And so I went out, and there's lots of people in the church, so I'm not worried about safety at this point. I can't do that if there's only a couple of people here. And I said, come on in. Please, come in. We have an electrical outlet. Sit on the sofa. Charge your phone. And he said, well, I have a friend coming. Is it okay if we both come in? And I said, absolutely. Come on in. Make yourself comfortable. So in they sat in the brown chair. I got two lemonades for them. I got one of the packets of treats from the table and set it down. Um, and then I waited to see how much food we had, <laughs> knowing that we had this whole huge thing. And uh, we didn't have enough. Um, but somebody, I don't know if they'll let me embarrass them, um, Haylene uh, ran out to Burger King to make sure that they had a meal too. Brought them back food. So that's what the narrow gate looks like. They left before dark, before, but before they left, they straightened the registration table, which had been a mess because you can imagine we were like Houdini, all the registrations, trying to get everybody settled, trying to get people seated. And next to all the straightened up pens, there was a letter. And I want to share that letter with you. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say the name of the gentleman because I wasn't given permission to share this real publicly, um, but I think the message is important. But hello, my name is, and he was with his friend. And I would like to thank you, not for the food, place to rest, or outlets to charge our cell phones, no, not for any of those, although, make no mistake, I am grateful and do appreciate it. No, I would like to thank you for looking at my friend and I in a sad state and not seeing a nuisance or a bum. Instead, you looked at us and saw two people, this is underlined twice, in need. Thank you for making me remember that I am still a person. It may not be much to you or anyone else here, but it's literally breath in my lungs. Amen. Sometimes the angels rejoice and sometimes they visit unannounced. Light the lamp. Light the lamp. I want to invite you through the narrow gate. I want to tell you, please, sweep the floor. Please, stay after, out after dark and find that lamb. Grumble all you want. Scream in frustration at the discomfort if you have to. Do it. Because God and all God's angels will rejoice together 
Together we can literally, not figuratively or allegorically, but literally change the world. Amen. Let's just take a moment. Let's just take a moment.